All right, let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word that is given to direct us to be a light to us, a light unto salvation and to fellowship with you. We pray that you would help us to understand your word and the things you have appointed for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we continue in our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we come to chapter 31. It's on page 866, if you're looking on in the hymnal. And the chapter is called Of Synods and Councils. Of Synods and Councils. Synods and Councils. Uh, It's kind of continuing on from the previous chapter. The previous chapter had spoken already of church officers in a government distinct from the civil government that is in the hands of church officers and spoke of church censures, of of church discipline. Um, And uh, each local church has a council, um, which in, in some way was already kind of spoken of in last chapter. Um, Both Presbyterians and Independents, you know, would agree that there is a church government in the local church, which has uh, primary responsibility for the discipline of its members. Um, And so in some ways, we already began speaking of a particular council of elders, uh, that of the local church uh, council, usually known as the session, at least in Presbyterian circles. Um, The terminology sometimes can be confusing because for the various levels of of church government, we use various words that all kind of mean the same thing. You know, session refers to a group of elders sitting in in an authoritative way. A presbytery means a group of elders that are, you know, sitting in in an authoritative way. And and a general assembly, I mean, just means a big council of, of elders that are sitting in, in a, an authoritative way. These, all these things uh, are basically terms that mean similar things, but we use to refer to uh, different levels. Um, and the session is the word we usually use to refer to the local church council, uh, which is composed of its minister and those ruling elders that join with him in the oversight and government of the local church. Uh, The minister is also an elder, uh, but he is also a a minister of the word and sacrament, and there are other elders uh, who join with him, like I said, in the oversight and government of the local church. We looked at that somewhat last time, uh, such as uh, 1 Timothy 5.17, for example, making this distinction of uh, elders who rule or who even rule well and Um, a a subset of elders that labor in word and doctrine, those who are called to preach. And um, we could also say from 1 Corinthians 9, those who are called to preach ought to make their living in the gospel and are set aside then to full-time ministry. Uh, Whether or not they're uh, able to be paid or not, that is their their calling. So there's, there's a minister, there are Uh, ruling elders. They join together in the local church, but then this chapter goes on uh, to describe not only that local church council, uh, but other synods and councils beyond 
the local church and how that is something that ought to happen and what they are supposed to do, what these councils are supposed to do. And he uses both the word synod and council and uh, speaks of these assemblies that are commonly called synods or councils. So either term could be used to refer to the same thing. Uh, so I'm mostly just going to call them councils, but you could also call them synods. And, and again, in, in Presbyterian history, synod has also referred to a particular level between the Presbyterian and General Assembly. The OPC is not big enough to, to have those, but when Presbyterian churches were bigger, that was one of those levels. But it's also just a generic word for a council, for an assembly. Um, of uh, uh, that, that governs the church. So they could be called synods or councils, but I'm just going to use the word council because then I don't have to be repeating both terms each time that I refer to them. Let's begin with the first paragraph. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are call, commonly called synods or councils. And it belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches, by virtue of their office and the power which Christ has given them for edification and not for destruction, to appoint such assemblies and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. So, first thing to note, that there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. Uh, and so councils of, of elders, not only on the local church level, uh, but beyond that as well, and a regional uh, level, for example, or a national level, uh, or less commonly, uh, an ecumenical level, uh, as the general church councils more common in, in the early church. Now, why ought there to be such assemblies? Uh, well, for the better government and the further edification of the church. So these are both reasons why there ought to be, and they're also telling us here the kind of the purposes, the ends of such church councils. Uh, it is for the better government of the church and for the further edification of the church. Now, what biblical basis is there for such things? Is this just a good idea that some people in the Reformation era or early church decided, hey, you know, I think we should have church councils? Well, interestingly, those who hold to an independent church theory that each church is independent um, end up coming up with councils or conventions, at least just for the sake of advice, because it is a useful thing. But we would go beyond that to not only a useful thing, but something that also has biblical warrant. Um, and we would find that both in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. In the Old Covenant Church, there was both a local council of elders, both ruling and teaching, in each synagogue. Now, you had uh, elders in each synagogue. You had those who taught, who were either Levites or rabbis, uh, but you also had beyond that elders who joined with them in the government and oversight of the church. You also not only had the local session in each synagogue, but you also had beyond that at least the Sanhedrin at, at the top, if you will, the group of 70 elders who was like the senate of the whole people, the, the assembly, the council um, that uh, oversaw the whole people. And that was called the Sanhedrin. 
uh, 70 elders that were composed of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people. They're all called elders. They were all 70 elders, but you could break that down further to chief priests, uh, scribes, you know, teachers of the law, and uh, who, who weren't priests. The priests were also supposed to be teachers, and elders of the people. And uh, this is the way you find it in the New Testament. You, if you, you kind of incidentally come across this in the New Testament, that there is this thing called a Sanhedrin, this council of elders, this presbytery on a, uh, a national scale. And also you go to the synagogues, and there's rulers of the synagogues, there's these elders in the synagogues. But they had roots in the Old Testament scripture. In the Old Testament, you had the elders of the city uh, that were local to each place and location. You also had the 70 elders of Israel that uh, were already existing, but then also uh, get used as a a form of government in the time of Moses and beyond, uh, that you had both this national level representative assembly um, as well as the local practice. And uh, as as time developed, this would uh, become less of a civil institution, especially as the nation itself lost its uh, independence as a nation, and more of what we would think of as as a church government. But not only is there Old Covenant precedent, but the the government of the Jewish people and the the synagogue uh, formed a model that was picked up by the New Covenant Church. So when they start talking about elders, it's not like, oh, where did this come from? You know, they, they already had familiarity with this form of government. And so in the New Testament, each church has elders, plural. Uh, in Acts 14.23, uh, Paul and Barnabas oversee the election of multiple elders in each church. Uh, and so there's that local church council uh, in, in each church. There's also each city. Each city usually had more than one congregation. You know, for example, uh, in, in Ephesus, Paul speaks of there being a church that meets in the house of Priscilla and Aquila, but that's not the only church in Ephesus, but the whole, all the churches in Ephesus were also called the church of Ephesus, uh, that there's a regional church, you could think of in Jerusalem as well, where you had multiple congregations meeting in different people's homes, um, much larger than could meet in any one location, but you could also refer to the church at Jerusalem, and this uh, regional church also had a presbytery that uh, these cities you could of Jerusalem get assembled together with James when when Paul visits uh, that there is this uh, regional level of Acts 15 which is probably the, the key text for synods and councils in the New Testament um, and I'm going to go ahead and, and turn there in Acts 15 we have an instance where there was a local disagreement, a dispute that wasn't able to be handled on the local level and was of relevance to the whole church. The particular controversy is described in the first two verses. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so there is, in context, they're talking about the church in, I think, Antioch. 
a, a local church that was not in Jerusalem, and they are not able to solve it on that level, and so they are appointed delegates to go to a, a broader church council in Jerusalem, not only with the apostles, um, but the, also with the apostles are elders that uh, form this council with them too. Of course, the apostles were elders as well. Peter describes himself in First Peter as a fellow elder uh, with the elders of the church. And so they come there, they debate, they discuss. Um, not only Peter, you know, if you, if if the New Testament was a, a government by the Pope, you would expect them just to go to Peter and have Peter decide the issue. Um, but, no, they go to the, the assembly, and uh, Peter doesn't even have the last word, uh, although he does speak up. And then at the end, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, and they have a, a letter that is sent the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. And so they came to an agreement that no, you do not need to be circumcised to be saved. Um, but they, they did come to an, an agreement on certain things that they ought to practice, and these were laid upon the churches with, with authority. They weren't going to lay any burden beyond this, but they did lay this burden upon them. Uh, and so as these delegates go out to the churches, chapter 16, verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Uh, so this wasn't a mere advice of some non-binding convention, but, you know, it was a case that had come up and there had been a, a decision that was then being passed down uh, to the churches. So there's a biblical basis for synods and councils. Um, there's probably, you could say, details that are not always specified about the exact running of them, you know, how... How do we manage the delegation and, and uh, things of that sort, which should be um, uh, guided by the general rules of the wor word and for the edification of the church. But the general principle is there, both local church councils and then also a, a, a broader church council of the church for the handling of these matters. Any questions at this point so far? Um, so who should call church councils? Well, our confession says here, yes. God, yes. Well, God is the one who appoints that there be such a thing. But what about should there be a council this year or this month? You know, where should we gather? You know, who is the one who calls it? Is it the, the governor? Should the governor? Do we have to wait for him to church, call a church council before we gather together? No, no. It, it specifies here the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches 
by virtue of their office and the power which Christ has given them for edification and not for destruction. They're the ones who do it. You know, Paul and Barnabas didn't wait for the governor in Judea to call the church council. Uh, now, King Herod could gather the, the assembly uh, if, if he wanted to, and he did when he asked for advice about where the Christ was, but they didn't have to wait for that to happen. They had authority delegated by Christ to assemble as, as a church council. And how often should they do it? As often as they judge it expedient for the good of the church. Um, there's not a, a fixed rule there, uh, but the, I think it's 2 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of the authority that he was given not for their destruction, but for their edification. Uh, and so it should be exercised uh, for, the, for the good of the church with wisdom. Now, this is a case where the Confession of Faith was revised. Uh, originally, this first paragraph was two paragraphs. So there were actually five in the chapter instead of four, like there is in our American version. Uh, originally, the second paragraph said this. As magistrates may lawfully call a senate of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with about matters of religion, so if magistrates be open enemies to the church, the ministers of Christ of themselves, by virtue of their office, or they, with other fit persons, upon delegation from their churches, may meet together in such assemblies. Um, That was stated which is, in one sense, it is saying that you don't need the magistrate to call a church council. But when the Kirk of Scotland, the Church of Scotland, the General Assembly, adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith, this was the one paragraph that they pointed to where, like, we, we accept this in a certain sense, uh, but we don't want to be mis- misunderstood. They clarified that it understood some things in this paragraph, as originally written, to pertain to Kirks or churches without a settled government, like the Church of England was at the time, because they had abolished their church government by bishops, and so things were in flux. And of course, it was Parliament who had called the Westminster Assembly to to settle that government. Uh, And so the Kirk of Scotland clarified that normally councils were to include both ministers and elders from the churches. Originally, it said the ministers could gather together by themselves or them and other fit persons, i.e., ruling elders. Uh, The Church of Scotland was saying, though, no, it should be both, normally, um, because they had just a controversy about that recently, and also that such councils were always free to assemble by their intrinsic power received from Christ, you know, even if the ruler wasn't an enemy to the gospel. Like, normally, the church is the one who is calling these assemblies. Uh, doesn't, it's not dependent upon the king, but on Christ the king. In fact, the General Assembly of 1638 happened right before the Westminster Confession was written, uh, had famously continued to meet, even when the king's uh, commissioner had adjourned it and said, you better get out of here, because if you keep meeting, you're going to be subject to, uh, to, to uh, bad consequences, you know, that by the authority of the king, this general assembly has dissolved. And the moderator said, well, we commend you for your loyalty to your king, but we're going to be loyal to the king of kings, to, to the king of the church, and we're going to keep meeting and abolish uh, government by bishops and other reformations that they wanted to do at that point. So it's not surprising that this was revised and clarified by the American Presbyterian Church. They just left out a reference to the civil magistrate because that was rather ir- irrelevant in the USA. It's not like uh, the magistrate was going to call a, a church council and uh, made it clear that 
the overseers and uh, the other rulers, so pastors and ruling elders, would meet together and call the meeting uh, by the authority that they received from Christ. All right, well, let's go on to the work of the councils. Paragraph 2. It belongeth to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. So what are some things that church councils do? Uh, especially thinking beyond the local church council, because we looked at church censures, for example, as one thing you know, that, uh, that, that local church councils would do. Um, but maybe not comprehensively here, but the main things belongeth to them to determine controversies of faith. Can you think of a church council where there was a controversy about doctrine that the church council addressed? Can you think of a church council that addressed a controversy about doctrine? You can raise your hand if, if you can think of one. Yeah. The Council of Nicaea would be a great example. You had a controversy about Christ and his nature, and so there was a council called. And they uh, addressed that, and they uh, handed down a decision about uh, what was correct doctrine and what was not. Now, kind of as a uh, connected with that is also the formation of creeds, you know, to distinguish heresy from from truth. And of course, we get the Nicene Creed out of that council and a, and a later council uh, that refined it. Also, cases of conscience, which would be similar. Uh, but instead of a debate about doctrine, more so a debate about practice, like the Jerusalem Council. was I mean, you could say it was a debate about doctrine, but also about practice. Does one need to be circumcised to be saved? Um, that's kind of both. But you think of other controversies. You know, do you need to do this thing? Um, and that might become a debate that would also go... To a church council. Um, what does God's word say? Notice it says ministerially. Ministerially, that's an important word. Church councils are not going to, they ought not to add to or take away from God's word. Um, it's not like they can come up with any laws that they want. They're supposed to be interpreting God's word and making decisions based on that. They're, they're ministers of, of the king. Uh, they don't have uh, that legislative authority to, to uh, simply do whatever uh, they want. Also, to set down rules and directions for better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church. Uh, so things like a, a directory of worship, uh, a form of government, so you have a common expectation how discipline's supposed to work, uh, which is useful for then when you have problems, that you have some guidelines that you can look to. So simply for the sake of order, you could go to 1 Corinthians 14, that God is a God of order and not confusion. And so this is something that's good for the edification of the church. Also to receive complaints in case of maladministration. So uh, local 
session does something that uh, people believe is wrong, that they abuse their authority, uh, that that can be appealed to the next level, to the presbytery, for example, and the presbytery then can hold that lower court accountable and and correct things uh, that were done wrongly and to authoritatively determine the same. There's a subordination of lower councils to to higher councils, lower courts to higher courts, uh, that this also keeps one particular church from going rogue and, you know, running over its members, that uh, there's accountability uh, among the church in this way to receive uh, complaints. We today would specify, you know, there's complaints that where... Uh, a, a session or, or presbytery is is uh, there's a disagreement that they did something wrong and so you complain against them and and if they don't accept it you can appeal that to a next level there's also charges that can be brought and if that's thought to be wrong that that charge can be appealed to the next assembly there's more details in our our form of government and book of church discipline or book of discipline uh, that would specify some of these details Now, these decrees and determinations, uh, if they're agreeing with God's word, because again, it's it's to be based on that authority, um, they should be received not only because they happen to agree with God's word, but because this is an ordinance of God, that he's appointed a government in his church. And so when the Jerusalem Council issued its decisions, they were handed down to be observed uh, as as an act of, of, of authority in Christ's church. Uh, next article is pretty brief here. All synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. So, obviously you can think of how the general assembly of the Old Covenant Church gravely erred when it condemned Christ. All right, that's a big error, right? Uh, that, that council was not infallible. Uh, you can think of the Second Council of Nicaea that approved the veneration of images, which would break the Second Commandment, and which is even condemned by other councils that were held uh, by the church. The Council of Trent would obviously be an example of a council that, that erred um, and uh, did so in many respects. The scripture does not teach the councils are infallible. Rather, the final judge is the infallible truth of scripture. So the councils are not to be made the rule of faith or practice. What's the only rule of faith and practice? What is the canon? The word of God, the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only is the word of God the only rule of faith and obedience? That is the canon. That is where we get our doctrine. That is where we get our duty. It's from the word of God. But the decisions, the uh, determinations of the councils are to be helped, used as a help, both for doctrine and for practice, uh, as an ordinance of God appointed to, uh, to help God's people. Uh, just because they are fallible doesn't mean that everything they decide is erroneous. It simply means that it it can be erroneous and, of course, should be uh, held to God's word. Uh, But there is a certain respect and reverence uh, for 
such decisions uh, as a very weighty thing which ought to be uh, used as a help both in what to believe and what to to practice. Uh, Last uh, thing here, last uh, fourth paragraph, uh, speaks of the sphere of church councils. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary, or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. So, just like we don't want the civil government to usurp or intermeddle with the church affairs and the the sphere of the church uh, and its responsibilities, the keys of the kingdom. Uh, So we don't want church councils to usurp and intermeddle with civil affairs and begin uh, taking on its responsibilities and not respecting the responsibilities the government has been given. Uh, When uh, people came up to Jesus and wanted him to divide their inheritance, uh, he said, who who made you, who made me uh, judge uh, in this Matter, You know, that wasn't his office, what he came uh, to do. Uh, And he instead condemned their greed and covetousness, uh, that there was someone already appointed, of course, by his uh, authority uh, for that, uh, which was the the civil magistrate uh, who was supposed to handle things of that sort. So church councils should not become political parties or political institutions. Um, there are, are two governments here that should respect each other. But there's qualifications. First of all, this regards the work of church councils and courts. It doesn't respect the preaching and teaching ministry of the church, which, of course, ought to speak to matters of what God's word says about politics and law and civil government, um, that, that that is not being addressed in here. Here it's speaking of uh, church councils in particular. Secondly... The Confession mentions two ways in which it is appropriate for church councils to uh, intermeddle with, church, with civil affairs. Uh, there are two ways in which it's appropriate. First, by humble petition in extraordinary cases, the church can petition the civil government. And also, secondly, by way of advice. If the civil magistrate wants to know, what does the church say about this thing so I can uh, resolve my, my uh, dilemma about my conscience, uh, that it can ad- ask for advice and the church should give it uh, when it's requested. Uh, both of these happen during the time of the Westminster Assembly, and there's more recent examples of humble petitions. Uh, for example, in 1993, the OPC General Assembly petitioned President Clinton to stand against the sin of homosexual activity, both generally and then specifically by not lifting the ban on homosexuals in the military. And so this was a humble petition in an extraordinary case that the OPC General Assembly sent to our president. Uh, The PCA, uh, Presbyterian Church in America, has sent a couple recently. In 2002, they petitioned federal and state governments to renounce the sin of abortion, to repent of the complicity and the mass slaughter of innocent unborn children who are persons in the sight of God, and to reverse the ruinous direction of both law and practice in this area. It was interesting. I think they voted on that, and then Roe v. Wade was overturned a month later, but I don't think it was necessarily directly connected. But uh, they, they did submit that uh, petition. And then also, uh, this year, they petitioned federal and state governments to end and renounce the sin of all medical and surgical sex change procedures in minors by the American health care system, uh, and sent a, a humble petition on that matter. 
to federal and state governments. So this is not theoretical. It's still something that the church councils and courts uh, can use as a way to still interact as a court, uh, as a council, uh, with, the, with the other government, with the civil government. Any questions as we wrap up then? Yes. Yeah, well, we can work on that. There might be doors that we can close, too, but we'll, we'll see that. All right, well, let's close in prayer, and, and then we can work on some of that. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, the provisions that you have made for the good of your church. Uh, we ask that you would help your church to use these things rightly, for we know that uh, apart from being used rightly, these things uh, will not be useful. Uh, that uh, you have given us many good gifts, provision by your word and ordinances. We pray that you would work in your people to use them rightly in uh, obedience to you for the good and edification of your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.